Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today I'm on the phone with Claudia Rankin. Her book, Just Us, An American Conversation, was published last month. In November, Claudia will be taking part in the Miami Book Fair, which is all virtual this year. Claudia, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for coming on Read More. Thank you so much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed Just Us, and I have already told my husband that I need him to read it so we can talk about it. Just Us is the final book in your trilogy that began with Don't Let Me Be Lonely and Citizen and American Lyric, which was a New York Times bestseller and won the National Book Critics Circle Award, among many other honors. Just Us, an American Conversation, is about whiteness and how it functions in this country and the need to talk about it, even though that can be uncomfortable. First of all, before we jump into talking about the book, I was just wondering, how has it been for you promoting this book during the pandemic when you can't meet readers face-to-face and our country has seen such a huge racial disparity when it comes to who gets the coronavirus and who dies from it? Well, I think um, the pandemic, the quarantine, the, um, you know, pre-election run-up, all of those things unique to this year. Um, But what I find is that almost because of those things, you know, I should add the protests this summer, it's easier to talk about the content of the book. Um, in the past, I found that you had to sort of convince people that um, white supremacy was the foundational blocks on which this country was built and and that many people are still invested in that ideology. But given everything, I think it's an, it's <laughs> you know an easier conversation to have. This book is really genre-defying. I mean, it features poetry and essays, vignettes, letters, photography, and other artwork. But the first thing I noticed about it when it came and I was getting it out of the box is how heavy this book is. And I understand that that was by design. Can you talk about the weight of this book and the subject matter? Well, the book... um because it has um, four color um, images, the very <laughs> the fact that you have to the book has to hold the ink makes it heavy, but it metaphorically kind of speaks to what it means to spend time inside a world where anti-blackness is um, the default position for white institutions and white individuals even as we, you know, spend much of the time of the book in very private conversations. Well, in the book, you discuss having conversations with random white people and with friends about what it means to be white and have white privilege. As I was reading about these conversations, especially the ones you had with strangers and white men in airports in particular, I was struck by your bravery. So many of us don't even have these conversations with our friends, much less strangers. Do you consider yourself brave? 
Is that what it takes to have these conversations in America in 2020? I don't no, I don't consider myself brave. I consider myself um somebody who travels a lot. So I have a lot of downtime. <laughs> and and those those um airport conversations came about intentionally but also inside the non-space of waiting for a flight or taking a flight. Sometimes I was on, you know, going flying internationally or on these 9-hour, 10-hour flights. So I I got the idea actually from my students who in my class constructions of whiteness were always interviewing family members or um sweet mates. And I thought, well, you know, we are always talking about groups of people who are not in contact with each other and are not speaking to each other, including in inside people's families. So I I decided that I would just approach white men about their understanding of white male privilege, given that I was subject to it. You know, um, when you think about what's going on in the Senate and in the executive branch, so it didn't feel it felt sort of like a project. It didn't feel like I didn't feel like I was at risk in any way. It's interesting that your book comes out when a popular sentiment among black people is, it's not my job to explain racism to white people. I don't want to do free labor educating them about this or that. The internet is free. But you seem to be saying for this to work, we all have to be willing to have the conversation. What do you say to black people who say, I'm tired and this is just too much? I say if it's too much, do not go there, you know? I I didn't write the book thinking I was educating white people. I wrote the book thinking I was creating um, a kind of blueprint, a a process of thinking about what conversations are between people, what are we trying to build when we engage in conversations. These are not conversations that I went out trying to have with the exception of um, white men, the white men on the planes, the men I did know. Most of these were conversations I had in the normal course of my life. Um, and all I did that um, I think maybe is a little bit new for me is I, I stayed with it. I pushed the moment to the crisis. Um, I didn't let moments of civility stop me from from asking what you know a person what they meant by a certain thing or pointing out that X um, statement could be heard as racist. But but I wasn't educating anyone. I was, <laughs> if anything, I was educating myself um, and trying to understand sort of how these conversations. Um, end up in silence, end up in people feeling hurt, in discomfort becoming, avoiding discomfort, being the most um, salient um, directive rather than actually engaging. You know, when when any of us talk, we're trying to build somebody, something between us, um, a, kind, a level of understanding, a way to know each other more, and so 
I, you know, I didn't, I didn't see this as going to people to educate them at all. Well, you mention a lot of your white friends in the book and you use interactions with them to illustrate the differences between the way white people see things and the way black people do. In one instance, you write about being the only black person at a dinner party, and there's just so many cringeworthy moments that happen that evening. And at one point, the conversation is steered toward a child study center in a city with a large black population, and if the word study should be removed. And everyone seems to think this is frivolous because the center is attached to a university and everything that happens there is about research. You write that the polite white people discussing this don't have a place in their referential memory for the history of experimenting on black people. Another time you recall a conversation with a white man you went to college with who had no idea that there had been a cross burning on your campus the fall before you two started school in 1981. When you brought it up to him, he only believed it after he looked it up online. Reading this made me think about how hard it is to talk about these things with friends who live in a different world and don't fully see you. What do you take away from these encounters? Well, that on a certain level, we're living in different realities. Um, You know, some of my irritation in the past would have been um, coming from a place of of you're willfully not remembering this or you're willfully um, avoiding this. But it was interesting to see that, oh, you, you actually don't, don't know. You haven't, it wasn't something that um, is part of your memory bank. And, and that was, you know, for me, that was a learning experience. I, I, I felt, um, then curious in the case of my friend who didn't, who I went to college with, who didn't know that there had been a cross burning the spring before, I I began to wonder, you know, how how did I remember? How did I know? Who told me? <laughs> and um, so it was those kinds of questions that I wanted to unfold and unravel and investigate. And what's interesting about that story um is that once I started looking into that cross burning, it turned out that the the men, the students at the time who were um, considered um, people of interest um, by the police later turned out to be judges in the um, justice system. And so it's hard not to... Um, or not to worry about what, you know, how they behaved in their long and lustrous careers. Well, that was another thing that came up in the book. You have another white friend who actually saw this cross burning and was the one to report it. But when you go back and talk to her, she was thinking, oh, this is you know, something they did in their youth, and she seemed to be pretty convinced that that's something they had left behind. And this whole idea that having these ideas is something that young people do sometimes, and then they kind of become more mature and and are more open-minded and to see the way the world 
really is, but you are rejecting that idea in the book. Why do you think people hold on to that so tightly? Well, I think I think people don't want to believe that we have, for example, a white nationalist in the White House, even though he said that, you know, pretty clearly that's who he was when he was running for president, um, and even though they voted for him on those grounds or or the people who decided not to vote in the last election in a way passively voted for him. So I think um, I think when my friend said that thing, like, oh, you know, they outgrown their racism, I, it, it feels to me like aspirational but benevolent, you know? <laughs> I think there's a, there's a way in which white people believe deeply in the benevolence of whiteness and um and even when it proves not to be so they're aspirational about it and it's the it's the narrative that we have been well you know that we grew up with that you're supposed to believe in the goodness of other people and you know what this country has shown us is that um white people can be good but the goodness doesn't extend to treatment of black people. Um, you know, they can be good to each other. But the minute it's about um, black people living in their suburbs or um, voting, then th- that goodness ceases to be. So, you know, I think her position of um, hoping they'd outgrown it is not unfamiliar to me, even if it's a little disappointing. I learned so much from reading this book, everything from the disturbing origins of Barbie dolls to the fact that Ted Cruz's first name is actually Raphael. In this book, you include fact checks of yourself and others with citations that either back you up or show where you weren't quite right. There are also photos and tweets that illustrate things you're explaining in the text. Why did you choose this unique format? Well, I think we are in a moment of fake news, um, a moment where science doesn't exist. You know, we're in the height of climate change, and yet science is debunked um, by our sitting president. Um, And so it was a way to point out that there are actual facts. And that we all have ideas, we all have um, thoughts, beliefs, myself included, that are not always right. And that we should maybe think about checking those things. <laughs> that, and there are ways to check and there, there are ways to bring forward the actual facts. And so it, it, I was in dialogue with the notion of fake news, you know, which has been a strategy used by this administration to debunk even the fact of the necessity of wearing a, a mask during COVID time, during quarantine, you know, all of those things which make sense to us but are, are then named to be false or political in order for people to um, manipulate 
parts of the population. You have a chapter in the book that talks about blonde hair. And one of your friends just told you flat out that it looks better and it was silly to attach blondness to whiteness and white supremacy. There was lots of defensiveness when you asked people about dyeing their hair blonde. One thing that struck me was the conversations about it seemed even more difficult than the ones about white privilege. Did you feel that when you were actually in these conversations? I did. Um, I think people really um, felt defensive around the notion that something that is seemingly so superficial and trivial as dyeing your hair could have meaning beyond um, just the fact of the matter. And so often I would say to someone, um, this happened a number of times, I would say to white women, um, why did you dye your hair? And they'll say, I just like dyeing my hair. And I say, well, um, do you dye it any other color besides blonde? And they say, no. And I said, so it's not just about dyeing your hair. It's about dyeing your hair blonde. And that's when the defensiveness would begin. And then about two questions later, they no longer wanted to have the conversation. <laughs> you know? um, with with um, women of color, especially black women, it was more of people had more of a... Um, a sense of humor around dyeing their hair. Um, it was a kind of appropriation that had a bit of campiness to it. It wasn't always, you know, in that case, it was like just one of, it was an example of something that could be taken and then um, uh, abandoned at will. You teach at Yale and you talk about the impact that your students have had on you and even just in writing this book and having these conversations with strangers about white supremacy. Does working with young people encourage you when it comes to these things, these hard conversations and dealing with race? I mean, do you find that they're more willing to engage with these types of conversations than older generations? I think so. I think um young younger people have a fearlessness. Um you know, I don't know how they would be in ten years when they have jobs and family that they feel they have to protect. But in their you know, between eighteen and twenty one the world is open to them and they are in the classroom to explore things. And so I find that they're very open. And and I, I'm I'm willing to actually put some hope in into them as a new kind of American citizen given what happened this summer with the protests. You know, I feel like we have never before seen uh, a, a diverse cross-racial, cross-age <laughs> um, gathering of protesters um, in 
in light of the the killing of George Floyd. So I I I have a little bit of hope that this is a sort of new generation of students. Now I'd like to ask you a few questions about your reading life. You write in so many different forms. You're a poet, a playwright, and an essayist. There are so many people who say, I can't get into poetry. I don't understand it. Are there some works you would mention for readers like that who want to try poetry and engage with it but don't know where to begin? Well, I have I I have some favorite poetry books like um, Jericho Brown's The Tradition is a book I am loving these days that I think is incredibly um, beautiful and um, something that would allow people to to have a sort of contemporary entry into poetry. Um, there are also poets like Paul Salon, which I like. Um, he he wrote after the Holocaust, um, before the Holocaust and after the Holocaust. Um, his work maybe is a little bit more difficult. But, but I think, you know, I think that for somebody who is not an avid poetry reader, one way to go about it is to get an anthology. In fact... Um, there's a new African-American poetry anthology that just uh, came out called African-American Poetry, 250 Years of Struggle and Song, edited by Kevin Young. The way I would go about it is to kind of jump around in a book like that and see who you like and then go and get their complete collections of work. Um, I think poetry is a discipline that asks people to live with the unsaid, you know, to be able to hold abstractions and not push for story. And to let the language be the thing that they're responding to um, without stressing themselves out about what does it mean. If you like it, if if um, the words sort of carry you somehow, um, then just go with that. Um, that's where you find images that stamp you in ways um, that are profound and speak to moments like this one, the one we are in as a nation right now. I know you're in the middle of your virtual book tour now, but have you already started working on something new? No, I haven't. I I really have been, you know, this time has been um, really interesting. Uh, in March, when uh, New York went into lockdown, I had a play that was opening called Help. Um, 
and it was actually an adaptation of the essay in Just Us about talking to white men on planes and thinking about how Donald Trump became our president. You know, how, how did a white nationalist end up in the White House? And um, and that ended, we closed after two performances. And I came home in March after that. And it's, you know, I've just been trying to be present to what's going on and thinking about the election um, and not trying to, to step into another project yet because I'm, I'm, this time is so um, intense, actually. You have over 200,000 people dead. You have people sick. You have families who have lost loved ones. We have no um, leadership, so no mode of national grieving around all of these deaths. We have now an uptick in cases around the country as we move into the fall and to flu season and the winter. We have um, a president who has bullied everyone, including um, the Democratic uh, nominee for the White House and has told, you know, white supremacists to stand by. We have Breonna Taylor's death has gone unaddressed in a way, um, her killing. So it's it's there's a lot happening. And so I I am just taking it in, trying to be available to anybody who might need my help and and um and hoping for the best. <laughs> Um, come this election we're in a moment of constitutional crisis we have a Supreme Court that could um, swing to the right and take away rights to choice you know a lot is going on yes it is it's a an interesting time that doesn't even seem like that's that word is inadequate, but it's mm-hmm. but there's just there's it's a lot. <laughs> People say it's it, a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> um, and yeah, so you know, it's more for me. This moment is more a time for reflection and vigilance. Um, just trying to get people to vote, trying to take care of my family. You know. Um, the upside is that I don't think in the last 10 years I have spent as much time with my family as I have in the last um, six months. So that's good. Well, I actually brings me to my next question. I was going to ask you if you had the opportunity to quarantine with any writer, living or dead, who would you choose to sort of spend this unusual time with? 
Oh, that's a great question. I think, you know, I, I hate to be so regular, but I think Baldwin. <laughs> um, you know, James Baldwin seems to know everything. Uh, it, it's, it's incredible how much of his work remains relevant and um, prescient, you know, even years and years and years later. So I think Baldwin, um, maybe also Fred Moten, um, he's somebody who actually just lives in New York, a state away, but I don't see him and I value his work and his thoughts. I definitely think uh, James Baldwin would have some interesting things to say about our president. And I I'm somehow don't think he would be surprised. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. You know, because it's not well, just him. He's he's kept in power by by all those senators, Romney and the rest. Well, Claudia, I want to thank you so much for coming on to talk about your work. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the close reading and the beginning of a conversation. Hopefully, we'll have another. Yes, hopefully so. As I mentioned earlier, next month, Claudia Rankin will be taking part in the first virtual Miami Book Fair. You can go to the fair's new website, miamibookfaironline.com, to learn more about it. You can also find out how to win a free copy of Just Us, an American Conversation, on our website, readmorepodcast.com. You can also support Claudia and the show through buying the book on our site. You can follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again next week for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.